you're a guest of the Master Control Program. Oh, great. Oh, man. On the other side of the screen, it all looks so easy. Welcome to Now Playing's Tron Retrospective Series. It's game on as we boot up the 1982 cult favorite, discussing each bit and bite before we see Tron Legacy, the highly anticipated sequel coming out December 17th, 2010. Guiding you down the information superhighway will be Brock. Because, man, somewhere in one of these memories is the evidence. If I got in far enough, I could reconstruct it. Jacob. Now you can see why all of his friends are 14 years old. And Arnie. Sometimes I wish I were back in that garage. We invite you to pop in your quarters and check out our score. But a warning, these podcasts will contain spoilers. So if you haven't seen the Tron films, press stop now and return after you've seen the films. Hurry, the users are waiting. Greetings program. Today we're talking about Tron, starring Jeff Bridges, Bruce Boxleitner, David Warner, Cindy Morgan, Bernard Hughes, Dan Shore, and directed by Steven Lisberger. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Jacob. And this is Arnie. And Brock, Jacob, do you believe in the listeners? (laughs) Without a listener, a podcaster has no purpose. (laughs) Well, that certainly is true, isn't it? (laughs) So today we are talking about the original Tron in anticipation of the highly anticipated Tron Legacy that's coming out in two weeks. So we thought it'd be a good opportunity to look back at what many consider a cult classic and could very well become a, a new franchise in the next decade. How much of a cult classic is this when there's not even a DVD readily available? <laughs> I had to do some hunting to find this movie. <laughs> Me too, and because Netflix doesn't even have it. And the first video store I went to, the disc was scratched and unplayable. And so I had to find a second video store. Now, I've done some reading, and what I've read is that Disney actually is intentionally squashing Tron right now. Normally, when a reboot's coming out or a sequel's coming out, the old ones are on TV. They've re-released the DVD. They put out the Blu-ray for the first time. Disney's intentionally not doing that because they think if young audiences see Tron, they're going to just think it's so dated and cheesy that they're not going to want to see Tron Legacy. Oh. You know, uh, Disney might be onto something there. We'll, We'll see when we get to our recommendations at the end of this podcast. I had to go to my local video store as well. My library had it, so I went back to them to get it because last year I was at the library with my wife, and she had never seen it. And I was like, you've never seen Tron? we got to watch this. So we rented it because I had no idea we were going to do this podcast now. And so when I went back to get it again to watch it again for this podcast recording, they didn't have it. And they said, oh, we have like 10 people want this. And then she's like, that can't be right. What year did this movie come out? Oh, my God. <laughs> Why do so many people want to watch this movie? And I said, well, actually, the sequel's coming out in a few weeks. She's like, oh. So she didn't even know that the movie was coming out, the sequel, which I found bizarre because I thought most people know. But I guess not because, as you said, they're quashing the original Tron. And come to think of it, I haven't seen a television ad for this yet. I saw, obviously, all this stuff they did for the past year and a half, two years for internet stuff. But Nat has seen not one television ad and one item in the Disney store I went to two days ago. And that's it. You know, Brock, the last time I saw Tron before I watched it for this podcast 
was in 1982. Wow. When I was a kid. And I remember very little except some of the iconic images that it's known, you know, the black light clothing, the Frisbees. But I do remember playing the arcade games, you know, those things before you had those home sets. You used to have to pop quarters into them. A lot of Tron arcade games came out and they were some of my favorites, especially they had, they had the disc one, they had the light cycle one. You know, besides that vector Star Wars game where you flew through the Death Star, the Tron games were probably, you know, my my second favorite after that Star Wars one. So, I mean, that's mostly what I remember about Tron is the video game aspect of it. Coming back to watch this, I remember very little about it. That said, I mean, I, as I've seen the, the previews and going to Comic-Con and seeing some of the hype around Tron Legacy, I, you know, even if I didn't go back to visit Tron, I'd probably go see Tron Legacy. It's got my interest. It looks pretty slick. I had the Intellivision games of Tron, but I never saw the movie until the late 90s. And so for me, I've always seen this movie, I guess, in a retro sensibility. And I never had an experience as a kid watching it. Let's face it. It said this on Wikipedia. And I've talked to a few people and I have said, well, we're reviewing Tron. And do you know what they say to me? I love that game. <laughs> Referring to the arcade game. The arcade game grossed more than the movie. The movie was a dismal failure. It and the black hole almost terminated Disney's live action films. That's true. All you needed is Black Cauldron. And now they're remaking Black Hole. They're sequeling Tron. Throw in the Black Cauldron. You've got another deadly storm here. <laughs> but nobody remembers this movie. When they do, they remember images. They remember light cycles. And everybody remembers the game. And so I think that that's what we have going into the sequel, especially with Disney squashing the DVD. Nobody is remembering this story of Flynn and Dillinger and the Messiah story that we are going to get into here. They remember the light cycles and the Frisbees. I'd like to kind of share a little bit of my personal experience with this film. I also saw it in 1982. For those listeners who don't know a lot about me, I am a computer programmer. In 1982, I was seven years old, and I was a computer programmer. I have been programming computers since I was about six, and this movie came out, and it was called Tron, and I knew Tron because it was a computer programming language term for Tracer On when I was debugging my code, yes, at age seven. Using this would help me determine which line of code had the error. So when I found out that there was a movie called Tron, I had to go, and I called my godfather who had taught me how to program computers and my godmother answered and I asked if I could speak to my godfather she's like yeah why I said well I want to go see a movie but I just want him to take me because I don't think you'll understand it <laughs> so he took me to go see Tron and I was strangely disappointed that it didn't have anything to do with for loops or branching if statements were you just hoping for a screen full of code? Someone just sitting there <laughs> typing code out the whole time? I didn't know what to expect, but Tron, I was using Tron, and I was expecting the sequel to be Trough, which was Tracer Off. I did go see that with my godfather, and so I do have very fond memories of this film. For those who listen to Star Wars Action News, my godfather passed away earlier this year, and so I'd actually like to dedicate this podcast to him. Perhaps not my recommendation of the film, but the podcast, because he did take me to that and taught me programming, which is why I even gave a crap about this film in 1982. Also, so the TSA doesn't come after me, I do have to disclose that I was part of the development team for the video game Tron 2.0. Not a paid part of the development team, but I have a development team t-shirt from being a free beta tester and getting some early previews of that game. 
I almost wish they hadn't named it Tron 2.0 because I think that would have been a great title for the movie. I actually do have to disclose that due to new TSA rules that have gone into effect. Would you like to disclose a plot summary while you're at it? Oh, sure. Well, this is the story of intellectual property infringement when a programmer, <laughs> Kevin Flynn, played by Jeff Bridges, has his arcade game programs, including the hit game Space Paranoids, stolen by Ed Dillinger, another co-worker. Dillinger is quickly promoted to senior executive vice president after the success of the games and fires Flynn from NCOM. Flynn opens an arcade to survive, but is intent on hacking NCOM's system to find the source code that proves he was the original programmer. With the help of former co-workers Alan Bradley and Laura Baines, Kevin breaks into NCOM and starts to hack into their system from the inside. But what Kevin doesn't realize is he's on the verge of discovering NCOM's new master control program, an AI which has been assimilating other applications and now has designs on a complete computer takeover of the world a la Skynet, believing that a computer can run the planet more efficiently than humans. To stop Flynn from discovering his work, the MCP uses a laser to digitize Flynn, transporting him into an electronic world where programs are represented as people and bear the faces of their programmers. There is a war going on with the MCP trying to convince all programs that there is no such thing as a user. Programs that believe in the users are considered religious nuts and are forced to fight in a video game gladiator arena with games such as High Ally Breakout and Light Cycle Racing. Flynn is taken to the game grid where he meets Tron, a program Alan had written to keep track of unauthorized system accesses. Tron is the only program capable of stopping the MCP, so Tron, Flynn, and Ram escape the game grid, pursued by the MCP's agents led by Sark, a program with the face of Dillinger. Once they escape, Ram is killed and Tron and Flynn are separated. Flynn discovers he has the ability to control the computer world, able to manipulate objects at will. Tron meets up with Yori, a program written by Dr. Baines, and the two try to reach the input-output tower where Tron can communicate with Alan and shut down the MCP. Tron and Yori meet back up with Flynn, and the three are pursued by Sark to the I.O. Tower. Tron fights Sark in a frisbee game, and Flynn jumps directly into the I.O. stream, distracting the master computer while Tron throws his frisbee, destroying the MCP. With the MCP gone, Flynn is reassembled in human form, and he is given the evidence that Space Paranoids was written by him. Dillinger is disgraced, and Flynn is made the new head of NCOM. Arnie, I'm just, I'm just glad you're a computer programmer, because uh, watching this now with the knowledge, that limited knowledge I have about computers and all that, I have a lot of questions about what happens in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, last year when I watched it with my wife, she said to me, that's, that's not really how computers work. And so I was like, well, I don't know enough about computers and how they do work to say yes or no to that, but I think she might be onto something. I think they may have tried to simplify things, because when this movie came out, computers were fairly new to the general people, right? Right? So perhaps they were trying to simplify things a little bit to get people involved in the movie. That's what I always took from this movie is that they took certain liberties to tell us a story, but it certainly is based in it. As a computer programmer, I can definitely claim the role of expert here and tell you that no, there is no digital world where my applications walk around and play games with each oh, other. Oh, man. And there is no laser that can actually miniaturize and digitize you to interact and fall in love with those programs. I'm not See, sure if you guys I, know this or not, but this was the first role the laser from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids ever had. I was just going to say that. That's oh, you like, were? <laughs> yes. I'm like, that's where they got that whole laser for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That's totally what it reminded me of. Now, Arnie, I know Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> but in, in 1982, was there like a worldwide 
network where master control could go search and find other computers and steal their programs. Have you not seen war games? Yeah, I war, ga- war games and I love war games, but at least that's the military. I could believe, you know, maybe the military has some secret thing. But, you know, they had like, what were they called? BBS message boards where you had to dial into the person's computer. It wasn't just roaming out there free. There were data networks. They were mostly mainframe, I think, still in the 80s. I mean, keep in mind, I was seven. I wasn't working professionally back then. But we are dealing with the advent of the personal computer. Businesses did have them. How was he assimilating programs? You got to think there was some modem connections, some phone dialing going on. Really? In many, many ways, this movie seemed ahead of its time and yet correct technologically. Because when the movie opens, one of the first things we see is Flynn controlling Clue. And Clue is a program he had written, which looks like Flynn. And he's driving a tank around. And I'm like, so is Flynn trying to hack the system? Is that what I'm seeing? And it was. And then these big arch things start attacking. And I'm like, Wait, is that a firewall? And it was. It is just as correct as hackers or swordfish. But what this has is the advantage of being 15 to 20 years before those other films and yet accurately depicting today's Internet world with Tron. Tron is a security monitoring system. He is your antivirus software and your personal firewall. I mean, it's amazing how right they are. I remember this movie always being said for years and years and years that it was ahead of its time. What you're saying now is that it literally was ahead of its time with a lot of its stuff. I think one of the reasons this movie may not have been as big a hit as they want it to be is that even though today we can follow what's going on because of our limited knowledge or better knowledge of computers, can you imagine someone trying to follow what you're talking about right now? Because I know as a seven-year-old kid, I would never have been able to follow all of that. And some people still may not be able to. So it's amazing you use those words ahead of its time because that's all I've ever heard about this movie. The one thing I can say is the personification of the virtual world makes it very Sesame Street computers. So I would think that a seven-year-old could understand it. I didn't walk out of there going, what's going on? But as this podcast may have proven, I wasn't your average seven-year-old. So (laughs) Jacob, you saw it as a kid. Did you get it? Dude got zapped into a computer and played Frisbee and beat the bad guy. Yeah, that's what I got. Right. Um, I, I didn't get, ooh, a firewall, <laughs> you know, but, but watching it now, I mean, I, I agree with what you guys are saying. Like, it's a movie that was ahead of its time where the general public didn't have the base knowledge of computers that I think most people do today, at least probably people under 40 have today. Yeah, my dad had a computer back in 82. He paid five grand for it. Most people didn't have that kind of dough to spend on a computer. Most people didn't have a personal computer. So I just think so much of this, I I don't think they really compromised on, on making it easy for the general public to understand. Like, yeah, they got the Sesame Street version. Oh, okay, here's a firewall. I don't know that's a firewall. I just know, okay, that's a bad guy because he's red and all the bad guys are red in this movie. You know, so I I think this film was exactly 17 years ahead of its time from 99 when The Matrix came out where people could understand what was going on. And it was a very kind of similar universe going on with people running around inside of a computer. But it's actually just the personification of the program. And because it's a personification and an abstraction of these concepts, they don't use any of the terms we know. I don't think we ever hear the word network even, do we? It's just talking about assimilating other programs. Now, 
These could be other programs from within the same company, for all we know. They're working at Encom, which is like an IBM, or I, I kind of pictured it like a Microsoft because you got the MCP assimilating other programs the same way Windows illegally used open source code in its operating system, allegedly. Yeah. The MCP at one point near the beginning of the movie, before Flynn gets sucked in, does mention that he did assimilate things outside of his own company. Right. Like he did say like he's been doing some a lot of illegal things. As we see in the movie when they're personified, a lot of the programs in that system were assimilated, but also outside as well. So here's my question. This movie opens up with this light cycle race, uh, you know, these cycles that create this maze behind him. You can't crash into the wall or else you get destroyed. And it intercuts between that race and people playing an arcade game. And so I, I, I'm left wondering, I'm confused, were these arcade games hooked up to the NCOM network or was that just two separate things. They, they weren't trying to draw the parallel. The, the people with the arcade games were actually controlling the light cycle. I wondered the exact same thing. I was really wondering that. Because that never comes back into it. You just see that at the beginning and then it's off in their own world the rest of the movie. I should add, I purchased this 20th anniversary DVD around the time that I was working on the Tron 2.0. I was in a big Tron phase. Never watched the DVD. This is my first time watching this movie since theaters in 82. So I remember very little of it. And so I'm like, are they just putting their faith in the users and it's the users versus the computer. I now think that they were just trying to really drive home what you're seeing is a game. Because keep in mind in 1982, games didn't look as cool as Tron looked. Games were like, do you remember combat for the Atari where you were the square with the little dash yep. fighting the other square with the little I dash? I that game. Oh, it yeah. rocked. But games didn't look this cool until about 20 years later. So I think they were trying to drive home it's a game and just drawing the parallel. But it was confusing at that point are the people controlling these avatars in the game but i'm pretty sure since it never came up again that they weren't i got the same impression but you're both absolutely dead on right so let's get into the actual movie now so we get to see flynn's arcade which i've seen the trailer for tron legacy is something that's going to come back so it was kind of cool to see it because i'm like hey that's exactly how it looked in the trailer did you see the old couple walking around in the arcade in this movie though <laughs> and i'm like wow that's really weird why are they there and the 80s fashion, I, I was like even more so than when we did Karate Kid. There's like the kid who Alan talks to and he's got like the sweatband, the red, white and blue sweatband and the knee socks. <laughs> I was <laughs> loving this arcade. And then, of course, Jeff Bridges with the feathered hair. And the amazing pit stains playing video games. I was blown away by that. No, I just love the fact that you, so Flynn, he's wearing a Flynn's arcade shirt because he's working the floor. And then he goes upstairs to talk to Alan and Laura and he goes to change his shirt. And, and I got to figure this is to play up to this love triangle between him and Alan and Laura. He needed an excuse to take his shirt off. But what does he do? He puts another Flynn's arcade shirt right back on. <laughs> But one without the pit stains. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess that's why. Maybe that's all he owns are these silk screen shirts that he ordered for his, his arcade. Jacob, you've seen me in person many, many times. Am I ever not wearing a Star Wars Action News or Now Playing shirt? <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> Thank you, you always are. So Laura and Alan go to Flynn's Arcade because Group 7 Access, as they call it, has been shut down at Encom because of Flynn's hacking. And they go there to let him know that they're on to him. And what do they decide to do? Let's go back in and do it again right now. <laughs> he brings them into NCOM after hours to break into the computer. And they seem pretty willing. Here's what confuses me. I get, but I don't get the relationship between these three characters. Because you've got Laura, 
who used to date Flynn, who's now dating Alan. So we've set up a love triangle here, right? Right. And it's made very clear. But yet there seems to be no competition, even though those two are still employed and Flynn is not. And they're more than happy to risk their own jobs to get Flynn back in so he can prove himself, which is like the thing good friends would do. It didn't seem played quite right. I mean, there should have been a little bit more, I think, friction between Alan and Flynn, perhaps. Because don't you think there would have been some posturing and a little bit more one-upsmanship and a little bit less Three Musketeers feeling if they both were fighting over job position and the girl? Well, I have a theory on this, and it kind of ties into one of my flaws of the movie, is that they underdeveloped these three characters. The exposition for these three characters is weak compared to how much exposition they do for everything else in this movie. You describe the plot of this movie in your plot summary, it seems very easy to follow, but when you watch the movie... It's just exposition after exposition after exposition, trying to explain, explain, explain. And I think the one part they just didn't do it when they really needed to do it was these three characters. And I felt a little bit of less exposition on the computer stuff in the beginning because we're going to get it later on when Flynn gets in the computer anyway. Could have helped this movie out a lot more and made the characters stand out much stronger. I would disagree with that here. I love the first half hour of this movie and I brought up the only flaw I could which is I just don't quite get the relationship but let's face the fact that after the 30 minute mark of this movie we don't see Alan and Laura again until the end of this movie they are non-entities spending more time developing them would be a mistake but what I love about this is in this first half hour we're setting everything up And we get a balance between the computer world and the real world. We get to see a little bit of the Gladiator arena and we meet Tron and Ram in the computer world. And then we are in the real world and we find out about the master computer and Dillinger created the master computer and he's sort of complicit, but also sort of worried. And we get this kind of overly artsy, I don't know how well it worked for me, but I like that they tried it, way of making the real world look like the computer world. Like you'd see a helicopter flying and it would have only red lights on it. So it looked outlined like the red stuff in the computer world. They had Lynn's bedroom. He he must have been like Kramer when the Kenny Rogers Roasters was right across (laughs) the street (laughs) because he had this big red neon light outside that tinted the entire place red. So they really were trying to make the real world as stylistically like the computer world as they could. And this was all working for me that they were trying to draw these parallels and really introducing us to two parallel storylines that go on here, the real world conflict and the cyber world conflict. I'm going with all of it. This first half hour, I don't think it should have been any shorter. It's my favorite part of the movie, honestly. But I think in that situation, when they get to the computer world later and the girl shows up again, what, an hour into the movie in the computer world and the old man who they set us up with earlier, he's recognizable because of the beard. Obviously, she's the only girl in the movie, right? But I really didn't recognize her all that much with her outfit on later in the movie. I was like, yeah, I think that's supposed to be her. And then because he also says Laura, so it kind of gives it away a little bit. But the point I'm trying to make is I wanted more connection to those people and I wanted to understand who they were more. I'm with this movie too at this point as well. But I needed more from these characters because it didn't make any sense to me. And then when we're back in the computer world and we see them again, of course I recognize Bruce Boxleitner, but I was curious if I had met Ram. I got confused. We spent so little time with people outside. I was scratching my head. Is, is Ram someone we met 
that in the real world as well? I don't remember that. And it turns out, no, he was just a guy in the computer. But I was questioning that because of how little time we spent with these other people. I would have liked a little bit more. And I would have liked to see more development with Alan and Laura and the triangle of Flynn, only because you get these personifications of Alan and Laura in the computer world, you know, Flynn's himself, you know, especially Alan and and Tron. Tron seems so different than Alan. I would have liked to see you know, maybe he has some male power fantasy that he lives out through Tron and Tron would really personify that macho side of him because Alan's kind of a geek. You know, I would have liked to seen e- either some parallels or juxtapositions more. And that all would have had to do with setting up these characters for the payoff later in the film. And I, I just didn't get that and go, oh, yeah, that's that guy has the same face, but he's a computer now. Uh, you know, it, it just it, w- it wasn't enough for me. And and they had that scene with him and Dillinger in the office. Uh, him, I mean, Alan and Dillinger in the office before he goes to see Flynn. And I guess that's what they were trying to do with that scene. Yeah, he, he walked up to Dillinger's office and talked to him there. A phone call would have been fine. <laughs> But he went all the way up there and talked to him about it there, and he didn't seem pissed off enough to go to Flynn and say, oh, you want to go in now? Okay, we'll do it now. You know what I mean? Like, that scene didn't make that happen enough. So maybe that's what they're trying to do. The only thing I could say, Jacob, to your they weren't enough of a wish fulfillment fantasy situation is what I liked is these programs weren't any part of the person. Well, except their whole body. Well, yeah, it looked like them because of who programmed them. I guess it goes to, let's start talking about the Bible, folks. It goes back to, (laughs) we are built in the image of our creator. But the program's personality was that of the program. Tron was a security program. The actuarial program was a geek, was a nerd. And Clue was a kind of a robotic kind of guy. The Clue character, Jeff Bridges, looked like at the beginning of the movie in the tank. Mm -hmm. He talked like a robot. He talked like a function. And didn't talk like Flynn. So I kind of liked that. You're a programmer, though, Arnie. And and I know some programmers. And there's always ways to put, you know, programmers, they're they're like any artist. They want to put their personality, some line of code, something like that. Anyone that does their work, they're going to put their own signature on there somehow. And I just would have liked to see some type of hint of that. That's not true, though. You might think it. But what I can tell you is every programmer has their different style, the same way every contractor and plumber has their own little tools of the trade. But it's not like I'm going to use some nifty I'm not signing my name to the code or anything I think that's something far more for like a game programmer to do to put an easter egg in about themselves than it is for somebody writing an actuarial program or me building yet another customer database so I I just kind of went with it I I went with the whole it looks like them but their personality is a result of their function now what would have been funnier is if game programs actually had the attitude of like those people in the arcade well let's talk about one of the themes of this movie then you know you get this theme of these programs that believe they have users you know this whole religion versus non-religion and I have to wonder if there's some kind of US versus the Soviet Union with the blue and the red and the religion versus the anti-religion and this coming out in the 80s but but that's one of the themes is some of these programs believe they have users but if they're totally different than their user what's there to make them believe you know why not have this security program that has this one little flaw that shows them hey someone must have programmed me because I'm not perfect you know something like that I if you're going to play up this theme there, there, it's got to pay out somehow besides people just talking about it well think about god and humans but these people communicate with their user there's a difference there True. i mean i understand the correlation but it's different i agree with you because i understand a program saying if i have no user what purpose do i have in the same way people could say without god what is the purpose of life but 
it's, it's separate in that programs are tools. And without input, I mean, other than some AI programs and things, they need instructions to function and they provide output. So they're telling things. So it doesn't quite work with a computer. But I think they were going for like a, a Romans versus Christians thing here, right? Where the Christians believe in the God and so they're forced to fight as gladiators. And here the programs believe it is in users and so they have to go play games. See, and we talked about how we felt this movie was ahead of its time and, and they're dealing with some themes that a lot of people at the you know a lot of the public at the time probably hadn't really thought about and this whole thing about computers gaining intelligence and becoming their own being and becoming this next step of evolution where they could take over and, and you know I, I guess I just didn't see that play out I the, the programs this computer world it just seemed too different from the real world I would have liked to have seen some connection your instinct is right on that the fact is they really bet the pot on making this so world so strange, so alien, and so video, and not tethering it to the real world in hardly any way. There are a few correlations, like they find water and its power, and they drink and kind of get a little heady off of it. And there's a cutscene where, which, did you guys watch the cutscene? It's kind of amusing. No. Uh, Tron and Yori interface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there are these correlations to reality, but in so many ways, it's trying to put you in the world of a 1982 arcade game, too. But we also talked about how there were, at the beginning, the first half hour of this film, they try to show kind of the real world as this arcade computer world with the red neon helicopter and the neon lights. And the final you know, shot of this movie, the same thing, trying to draw these parallels between the computer world and the real world. And I think it's themes maybe we're much more sensitive to having grown up with computers our whole lives than right. the crowd at that time. I just don't know if you know, they were pushing it so far with the language and visuals of this movie alienating the audiences. I have to wonder if that's what stopped them or if they just didn't really want to push it that far. My biggest problem with this movie is that it seems to be all about the visuals after the 30 minute mark. We have our first 30 minutes where there's a lot of setup and I'm really into it. And then Flynn gets digitized. And for the next hour, we are in the computer world and we only get two more minutes. Uh, we get a few more minutes in the real world as we get to see Dillinger talking to the MCP a little bit. But Mostly, we are in the computer world until the last two minutes of this film with Flynn. And it completely severs its ties with the human world. And we get to see human constructs there. The programs are in prison, but it doesn't necessarily have a programmatic correlation. And it just becomes this Star Wars-esque kind of film with the programs who believe versus the MCP's troopers. And they even have a really bad, like, cantina scene of, I guess, misfit programs. Is that what those were supposed to yeah, be? Yeah, that was weird, man. It doesn't it doesn't play into anything except Fling crashes a, a spaceship he made into him. But yeah. it was kind of random. It really kind of was. Agree. Yeah, totally. Now, the bigger gimme is being scanned into a computer with a laser. Hey, they set that up with the orange. No, I, I know <laughs> they set it up. It didn't make any sense with the orange. Like, did they not have like I got like three scanners sitting on my desk right now. Did they not? Is that like the old version of the scanner was a laser actually transferring matter into it? where does the matter go in the computer? I think they were trying to build a Star Trek like transporter. 
Okay. Because they talked about the atoms being stored in the laser, and they specifically say it can then be rebuilt someplace else. I think they're working on laser teleportation. I do have to say, Arnie, you talked about the visuals, and really that's what I remember from this movie. That scene where Flynn gets scanned into the computer, you know, where it freezes him and then takes him bit by bit. That's one of those images that's always stuck with me. And so when I saw that, I'm like, okay, here's something I actually remember from the first time I saw this film is very a very vivid memory. Me too. It horrified me as a seven-year-old. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it takes away his finger. You know, it's dicing him up. You see him minus a finger and that freaked the crap out of me and now i'm looking at it, i'm like well that's kind of cool for a 1982 effect and i don't have any of the fear i had such fear of computers between this and superman 3 i couldn't <laughs> i couldn't go near my pool cleaner for like years i always thought what added to it was that when he got zapped his hands kind of went up like ah! You know, his face was that paralyzed, like, look of, like, what the hell just happened kind of thing. And that certainly did add to that little bit of, like, creepiness to it. It was kind of, it's a very bold image in my mind as well. Yeah, and let's keep in mind, this is coming from Disney, not Touchstone, not anything else. This is Disney. So I think that they actually were a bit brave a couple of points, and this was one of them. I thought that was a harsh image for Disney. So Flynn is there, and he's immediately forced to go into battle in a game of high ally against another program, a believer program. So it's blue on blue, which is something we don't ever see again. And that program was out for blood. And I kind of liked this scene. I liked the high ally meets breakout where the whole rings were going down. I, I really grooved on this scene. I do too. I like the scene very, very much. And to me, this is when the movie really starts to take off. In this, in this one scene anyway, it really, really, as a, as a piece of, of the film, it shines. They did say though that Something about, I want him to fight one of his own. Did you guys catch that line? Well, Sark knows he's a user. So when he said, fight one of his own, I got the impression that this other guy was a user too, but Flynn was the first user that was sent in the computer, and I got confused a little bit by that. And then I guess they meant one of their own, meaning... Blue. Blue uh, versus blue. Yeah, yeah. blue guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's all it could be. I thought the exact same thing. I'm like, one of his own had to mean a user. Oh, no, it's just a guy in blue. Yeah. <laughs> See... And I like, wasn't that program that he goes up against, wasn't it like an accounting program? It was kind of frumpy and big, you know, kind of how you would imagine, no offense to people who program like computers me. and that, <laughs> yes. But that's, that, no, that's the stereotypical image. And I like that once he gets in this game, he's like totally badass. And he's like, I'm going to take this guy out. <laughs> like, I like that, that it goes against like, you know, I, I talked about, uh, you know, the whole Alan with the, the maybe incorporating the power fantasy in with Tron. I like that you see that side of this accounting program that it gets this confidence and really goes for blood i agree i really liked it and i liked that flynn goes right back at him and realizes instantly it's kill or be killed once the floor starts to fall out from under him and even though there's no real depth everything in the background is black i loved the feeling of height it got i, I liked that a lot you guys didn't mind that when, before he went into the highlight game, before he went to that, and the Sark started explaining the game, the game grid again, that it was repetitive information from earlier in the movie, that although they did give us a glimpse of the computer world early, which was great, they explained the games twice to us in this movie. And I, at this point, I was getting a little tired of exposition, and you guys didn't have a problem with that at all? Not yet. Okay. I was still going with it here. Okay. And then we get to the light cycles. 
Now, I'm watching this, and I was really looking at it, and again, I'm thinking how ahead of its time it is, because games did not look like that until, really, the PlayStation 2 and the PlayStation 3 to get this high res. But everything was angled just such. I'm a big gamer, and everything, the way it played and the way it worked with geometry, I was like, holy crap. 20 years, 25 years before the technology was available to make games that look like this. Here it is on screen. It doesn't have the coloring. It's very stylized in the color and the shading. But the fact is, first of all, we're looking at real computer-generated images, which I, w I wasn't sure because they're so well done. I, I had to do some research to find out what was hand-drawn and what was computer graphics. And if a person was in the screen, it was pretty much hand-drawn and if it was all images it was computer and the fact that they were doing that in 1982 really blows my mind it looked very good realistic not at all but very good and then you, and you'll notice you didn't have a combination shot either it was one or the other mm-hmm yeah unlike like mary poppins where they combined them they didn't do that here for the computer stuff because i don't think they could but i didn't really care i didn't really mind i thought it really worked the way they edited it with the when they were inside the, the car and they go on the outside of the car mm-hmm it certainly served a purpose. You didn't have to have the insert shot. I bet you in the new movie, you're probably going to be able to see in shot like inside the car as it's, as it's moving, like they did for the um, special edition of Star Wars when you went into the cockpit. Because right. they can, they probably will because of the technology. They want to show off a bit. I guess that's what they're going to do. Just the perspective and the use of geometry in this. I was really astounded at how gamey and computery it all felt. And... Man, just I, it boggles the mind. I mean, you know that it took days to render the Matrix with modern computers in 99. Can you imagine how long the rendering took at this? I actually had to look it up because I thought maybe they filmed this in 79 because I honestly thought it might have taken years for these graphics to render. Huh. You know, it's funny you bring that up, Arnie. When I was watching this now, I'm like, man, this looks really retro. I'm like, this looks like total PlayStation 1, man. <laughs> um, and then I realized it's 1982, and uh, I had an Atari 2600. Yeah. So yeah. It is, it's pretty amazing when you wa look at it from the historical perspective, where technology was at the time. My question is, going back to the light cycles, why the hell do the red bad guys get the blue light cycles and the blue guys... Get the multicolor ones. The coloring through it, it threw me off. Oh, that pissed like, me off too. If you got a blue suit, you get a blue light cycle. If you're the bad guy, you get the red one. It's G.I. Joe versus Cobra, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader. Get your color scheme right. It's so pivotal for these kids. Good versus evil movies. You gotta you know, you gotta stick that color scheme. I made the exact same note that that confused me because I thought the red speeders were the bad ones and the blue speeders were the good ones and that was so not right and then when they all escape i'm like did they change color oh wait that's always been them it was on wikipedia and that's how i read about it in the originally they had the colors basically it came down to uh, they had the scheme of like yellow was going to be good and and the bad guys were going to be blue but and they already produced some of the scenes with different colors and by the time they decided to um change up the colors for i think a technical reason they had already made some of the stuff and it was so expensive to do that they couldn't redo it the process again so they just let it stay in the movie which is why i think clue was yellow in the beginning of the movie instead of being blue because the rest of the good people are blue in the rest of the movie but the light cycle scene was one of the first things they started working on maybe because arnie's on something because of the rendering thing that they couldn't go back and change it if there's a special edition released one day they can probably go back and change the colors 
Flynn's in the computer. He's brought to Ram, and Ram explains a little bit what's going on. They go to Sark, and Sark explains what the game grid's about. Let, let's talk about Sark here, because first of all, David Warner, great David actor. Warner. We saw him back with Star Trek V, of course. And Star Trek VI. Yes, yes. I keep forgetting he was in both of them. I liked him as Dillinger. He worked as the voice of the MCP, the heavily synthesized voice. Yep. As Sark, he looked ridiculous because he's supposed to be this Darth Vader-esque. I mean, this movie came out in 82. I had to keep reminding myself this came out before Return of the Jedi. But all I could think was Empire Strikes Back Darth Vader off of him because he's standing on the platform above where his people are running the ship, just like Vader in the elevated platform on the Star Destroyer. But... That quilted suit and the fact that they let his face be visible and you just see a British guy in a quilted suit, he did not come off as menacing to me. Yeah, like the stormtroopers had those gas mask type things on their face. I mean, yeah, he, he's an old guy in a big puffy suit. Yeah. With red yeah, highlights. With yep. And, and <laughs> I, I agree. I, I just didn't like that Sark at all. Actually, the character of Sark either. I didn't really care for it at all. I feel it was a mistake to have David Warner as three bad guys. Everybody else was two personas, right? But David Warner was three. I would have preferred David Warner to be the MCP and, you know, have a buff program or something, you know, have the one programmer who happened to work out write the MCP's enforcement algorithm or something and have the MCP be your emperor because that's kind of what it was. It was a face in the shroud like the emperor in Empire Strikes Back. And then you needed a Darth Vader in that Sark role and putting David Warner in all three. I, I find that to be a misstep, especially since at the end you have to see David Warner taken out three different times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you also have Ram, who I mentioned earlier, was not a person we met in the real world. You could have put Sark as a different person also, and we would have accepted it, given that we have Ram. It would have completely worked. It would have been so difficult for them to do split screen. No programmer writes just one program. It's even admitted here that Flynn wrote Space Paranoids and many other games. How cool would it have been to have... Other programs that Alan or Flynn had written walking around. What about if Flynn ran into space paranoids in there? When they get chased by the tanks after the light cycles escape and the tanks are following them and shooting at them, they have a couple of insert shots of the guys in the tanks. None of them look like Flynn. And Flynn says early in the movie, he says, I wish I didn't write all those tank programs. Then why don't all of the tank people look like Flynn or at least one of them? At that point, I didn't understand that. And, and see, again, that you had the theme of the user, those who the believers versus the non-believers. And if somehow you had whoever the bad, bad programs are, the red programs, if you had them to, to deny that they even might have a user somehow, you know, make a habit of changing their physical presence to show that they have no connection to this other world. I mean, something like that to explain the difference or else it's just inconsistent, whether it's limitations due to the technology or the budget or whatever. It's, it's just poor storytelling. So. I have a problem with them escaping at this point. I was telling you, Brock, earlier with the Hialeah game that I was really into it to that point. Then the light cycles come, and man, this is when my excitement watching this movie hit the apex. Because what is cooler than a light cycle? Really? <laughs> is anything cooler than a light cycle? To this day, if you offered me a lightsaber or a light cycle, ooh, something with Dude, lights. a light cycle has a lightsaber as exhaust. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. So I was so jazzed. 
But didn't it seem kind of rushed how they just got into the light cycle? It's like immediately he's running into another game and then they escape. And how can they escape? Where are they escaping to? Brock, you've mentioned several times you were tired of the exposition. Starting with the light cycle scene, and this continues for the rest of the movie, I'm left with a big WTF is going on here. And I think <laughs> they cut a ton of exposition that would have explained it to me. At Right as the light cycle breaks through the wall, this movie stops remembering how to tell a story. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's like, how did they know that would work? How did they know they could go through the wall? Did they sit there and all come with a plan? Yeah, like... I, I felt the same way. I'm like, did I miss a scene where they came up with a plan before they started riding their bikes? What's going on? Yeah, I felt when they said we're getting out of here. I'm like, really? Where are you going? Because I get the impression the master computer controls everything. Now, what I guess the cut scene more than anything tells me is that Yori has an apartment and she lives there. And so this is like a real world with homes and things. But I didn't get that. From the movie until that one cut scene. The whole movie, I don't get the impression these people live anywhere and that they could be running to go home or anything. I see them escaping and I wonder, what's the plan? There's no resistance movement that I've ever heard of. Well, they said the game grid are being sent to the game grid. So they're escaping from the game grid. Your point about how they know that was going to work in, you know, they seem to know where they're going when they're driving out there. They all seem to have a good sense of direction about where to go. I had no problem with them getting off the game grid. I actually put in my notes, they're escaping the game grid, but to go where? That's what I'm wondering. Even Flynn. Flynn should be saying, guys, where are we going? <laughs> Because Flynn is our point of view character here. The whole reason Flynn's not even the, uh, much of a hero here. The hero is Tron. The movie is titled Tron. So Flynn exists only to be our avatar into this computer world and to be there so that people can tell him to tell us what the hell's going on. And he's just driving the light cycle. He's fine with it. And I'm confused. I think they continue to explain about the water is power and they have to get to that tower. They constantly keep explaining what they have to do, what they have to do, what they have to do. What they don't explain is what you're talking about. Okay. They, they never give me the why. Exactly. Beyond, I have to talk to Alan. Well, why do you have to talk to Alan? What is that going to accomplish? They give me just enough to say, I'm doing this right now and to tell me what I'm watching. But it just feels pretty. I want to know, like... After they get the power, they get back in their cycles and they blow up and Ram dies and nobody cares because who was Ram. And then <laughs> Flynn just starts motioning around and builds a recognizer. Dude, he pulls a Neo. <laughs> like <laughs> I was totally thinking Matrix. I mean, yeah, he just he's like, oh, I could all of a sudden reprogram the stuff around me. That would have been helpful like earlier in the movie. They wouldn't have had a blow in a hole through the wall. He could have just opened it up. But how did he discover he could do this? I don't know because he's a user. <laughs> but. Something should happen. Neo had to be killed and then rise again like Christ. The Matrix ripped off Tron. I mean, they're both Christ metaphors in a computer. But at least Neo had to die to get his powers. Flynn had to have Ram die. So Ram he got died. got a really bad accident. He probably sprained an ankle. <laughs> and he builds the recognizer, but then he can't control it. He can control matter or electrons or whatever it is enough to build it but he can't keep it aloft or rebuild it once it crashes. And this confused me because earlier when he's in his own arcade playing the game and all the groupies are watching him, 
like he's blowing up those type of recognizers in the game. And I figured, well, he must know how to fly it because he was playing that arcade game. He was almost getting to the kill screen. I had no idea why he couldn't fly it all of a sudden. I got the impression he didn't rebuild the recognizer because the pieces were gone. I think he saw the pieces on the ground and all of a sudden the force came to him and he's able to build it. But why he couldn't drive it is a fantastic point. It reminds me of the genie from Aladdin. Enormous power. Itty bitty living space. <laughs> I could build anything, but I sure can't use it. Yeah, yeah. and couldn't you, couldn't you build a recognizer with a better control system? Like, what has a, like, that weird joystick? I mean, this guy plays arcade games all day. He, he couldn't have built something that he was familiar with. More to the point, he created arcade games. Why didn't he build something nobody was familiar with? Something more powerful. Hmm. I did like the recognizer he built had that one piece missing, so we know it's his. Speaking of pieces missing, I liked Bit. Yes. No. I love that. Although, do either of you remember a TV show from the 80s called Auto Man? No. No. Auto Man, I think, ripped off Tron, too. I'm not sure, honestly, which one came first, but it was about a computerized person who could turn into a car, and he had a bit floating around that he called Cursor. And it was binary, too. Do you think people appreciated binary language jokes back in 82? (laughs) Do do, do they like them now, Jacob? (laughs) I I was able to appreciate it. They're bringing in binary. And, you know, I kind of thought that was neat. (laughs) I'm a dork, though. So push up your glasses and fix that pocket protector, buddy. So we go back and forth from Flynn to Tron. And Tron meets up with the girl program. I think she's in the laser section right this i got the impression that she was hanging out of course because her real life counterpart does lasers right so that's where that structure was and he went to see her there they went to see the old man program at the communications tower the old man jacob did you recognize him i only recognize the voice not the face he looked familiar but i couldn't pinpoint bernard hughes grandpa from lost boys okay I recognize that voice. I'm like, I know that voice. And I had to look him up. It's grandpa. One thing I hate about the electronic world, all the damn viruses. Can we get a Tron vampire crossover? <laughs> that might be awesome. You, True you Tron. see them. You see them sucking out the their their black light neon Tron light. Yes. <laughs> I never really cared for bringing back the old man at this point in the movie. I don't get why he looks like Max Rebo in that thing. I don't get... <laughs> I thought I they were just... alluding to the uh, Caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland. It was, it was weird oh, getting Oh, maybe. Maybe. But he was the guy who gives him access to the users. And so it was shut down. These towers are shut down by the MCP for the most part. Yada, yada. Everything's being patrolled. I get all that. But why he looks that way and why he is the guardian of that tower. Now, earlier in the movie, they dropped that he was one of the first people who helped NCOM in the garage. And and him and I thought Dillinger and a couple other people, Alan, I thought, were the people who helped build the company from the garage to the great big worldwide company. But it doesn't really matter to me at this point in the movie when he's sitting there on this, I guess, Wizard of Oz kind of get up kind of stuff. I don't understand any of why they chose the way to do it this way, why he is there. It doesn't make sense because he should also be part of the laser thing. He should yes, be. Yes, he should part of Yori's deal. But again, I was kind of fine with it. I didn't question it because at this point, every single person we'd seen who worked at NCOM was floating around in the cyber world. He had to show up and he showed up in a fairly aiding and abetting role, which we should have him in as his real life counterpart was upset at Dillinger too. So that didn't bug me. His outfit did. I'm like, how come he is like this mushroom? I love the scene. 
I like the Tron. That it, talk about images about Tron. This is the image that I used to see on Disney specials all through the '80s, and when they flash like dis- different Disney moments from classic Disney movies, the light cycles, and this part with Tron with the disc and all that's also on the poster, etc. It's a very good image. I love the idea that he's communicating with Alan. I like everything about this scene except this guy, and it always has bothered me, and especially the look. At this point, I'm kind of checking out from the movie, and I think that's why I don't have as big a problem with the guy there is because I just have a problem so much with why are people doing what they're doing and Flynn is separated from them and pulls another Star Wars thing by stealing the red armor just by not punching a guy in the face and touching his armor and he goes undercover and accomplishes nothing and I'm just very confused what is going on? I watch things happening and people are saying words and I understand the words, but it's still not telling me a plot. You said this plot summary was very easy to follow. That's because yeah. I skipped this whole middle because <laughs> I don't <laughs> get it. My big complaint about this movie is for all this exposition they keep throwing in this thing, but the basic story to me is pretty simple, but they found a way to keep compounding it and making it more complicated. Everything is more complicated than it has to be in this movie, and I can see why it gets it, it gets a little dull and boring and hard to follow at certain points. For me, I was working a little bit here to try to figure things out. But since I've seen it as recently as last year, I was able to put things together much quicker. So for me, I did all the work last year, I guess. It was a very simple story, a very simple idea. And they kept on finding ways to complicate it, which didn't help this movie at all. Listen, it's a simple story in that they're off to see the wizard and then fighting the bad guy. Yes, that's why I was able to boil it down so easily in the summary. But the specifics of it are nonsense. It's not that they're complicated. It's that they're never explained. Like this one. Here, here's my question for you guys. Tron has to find this data port to talk to Alan. Is Alan just sitting around waiting for Tron to communicate to him? How I, I, I didn't get that. That it wasn't like Alan knew what Flynn was up to. To he was gonna, hey, I'll hook you up with Tron. Like, how was that supposed to work? That's something else that bugged me. Is I really thought that at the end of this movie we would have one of those endings where Flynn's like, I was in the computer world, and Laura would be you were only gone five seconds because data moves faster. So I thought, well, Alan's waiting to talk. Well, it's like when we're booting a program and we're just waiting for it. And what seems like days in the computer world are seconds to us. No, that's not what they did at all. And so, it, yeah, it makes absolutely no sense as to is Alan just sitting around wishing his computer would respond faster? Is Alan trying to hack his way in and now Tron's able to work way out? Seeing that Alan doesn't have access anymore, that's what kicks off the beginning of this film. That's why well, they go and get Flynn. I can How does this. he even have access? Go for it. I can answer the question. It's in the movie. It, they said when they're breaking in in that very big door, Flynn says, just wait by their computer. And once I get in, you're going to have to have you're going to have like five minutes or so to or less to talk to the Tron program to get them to do what you want to do for the MCP before they shut you down. Flynn is going in to forge the what was it level six access or whatever. And once he gets in, Alan's terminal will come on. Alan will be able to communicate. Boom. That's what I took. So literally, Alan is sitting by the computer waiting to hear from Tron. See, I needed that exposition repeated more, (laughs) not the video game exposition. (laughs) I needed that. But what I also needed was if it required Flynn to hack the system to allow Tron to do this, then Flynn's actions in the cyber world should have somehow aided Tron. At this point, Flynn is a useless character. He created his recognizer. 
flies around, steals some armor. He does nothing. Tron gets away in his light cycle. He yeah. doesn't need Flynn's help at all. No. So if Flynn hadn't broken in, if Flynn hadn't been digitized, well, I guess the butterfly effect, maybe they never would have broken out. But they wouldn't have come up with that plan. They never told us they came up with. <laughs> I was with. Jacob on this one. It should have been repeated more than once. And on repeated viewings, maybe we can stop seeing so many holes. But that is but one of many things that I don't understand. They're going back and they just happen to stumble upon Flynn just hanging out. Literally. He was hanging he was hanging off the solar sailor thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I wondered if the solar sailor was a communicator because it's on a beam. Right. I also wondered if Count Dooku was on it. <laughs> you, you said something a second ago, a data stream. I took it to be something very similar. Like it's a pipeline for data that go back and forth in the computer, right? And then they had a second one right above him that he diverted the beam to, etc. But those are the only two beams we saw. And the second beam, which he diverted to, went right to where he wanted it to go. So while I love the idea of the data stream, I was thinking there should be a big network of it, or did they only appear when they're transferring data? And I would have liked a little bit on that. I found this whole data stream thing incredibly boring. It goes on way too long. But I don't know if you guys noticed this. They go over a hidden Mickey Mouse silhouette in the mountains. It's at, at 69 minutes and 30 seconds. Did you guys catch the Pac-Man earlier, though, when Sarge yes. was looking at the game grid after they I, escaped? I was wondering if he hacked into a Pac-Man game. I'm like, why is Pac-Man there? That would have made this game so much better as if Pac-Man started eating the light cycle trails. Yeah. <laughs> I caught the hidden Mickey. I missed the Pac-Man. The whole solar sailor. Yeah, I didn't get it. Is it just a taxi cab? Is it data? It's, it's not really explained it doesn't need to be i guess but everything else seemed to have kind of a representation i can't imagine solar sailor the game put in your quarter to move real slow maybe that's what the old people were there to play <laughs> back then they had games like et or smurf where you just literally walked around but nobody so played them <laughs> you know about the dumpster of et games right <laughs> yeah sure i sure i do but i'm just saying those kind of games back then did exist now something else happened to me at this point in the movie with the solar sailor all of a sudden i started thinking wow the graphics look like crap did they move to hand animation? The solar sailor didn't look good. And then there are these like weird bug things that kind of look like Johnny Five with legs. Those look completely hand-drawn animated to me. I thought so too. And according to the special features, those were all computer animated, but they did have two separate computer animation companies. And they're like, but we really worked so that you wouldn't be like, this is company one, this is company two. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. I was like, this is a computer and that's Disney's animation studios. But company two did all of the solar sailor walking bug. If it looked fake, it was company two. Ah. Which I guess could be good because eventually all animated movies would go there. But nonetheless, it, it, it didn't work for me in Tron because I really thought I was seeing cell animation. I, I just found it odd. Uh, there, I mean, th this is when the movie lost me was this whole solar sailor thing. I just grew bored. And, and I liked how they we mentioned how they play with time in this movie. I like the whole they, they keep up the whole thing, you know, inside of a computer. Everything moves incredibly fast. This scene just drags. I wish they would have uh, actually emulated that computer speed during the scene because it just yeah. drags. And I don't know if I dozed off. I don't know. <laughs> it, it just it seemed to go on forever. I wish I would have dozed off and woke it up because they still would have been on the freaking boat. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't tell you why Yuri and Flynn kissed. In the real world, they have the love triangle. In the cyber world, there doesn't seem to be any relationships at all. In the cut scene... Tron and Yori go and have sex 
And then this scene even becomes more nonsensical because why is she kissing him if she's with Tron? There should have been something. And again, I just feel like so much must have been cut, maybe never even filmed, but I'm sure there had to be something in the screen where he starts telling her about the world of the users and about flesh and about pleasure and about wine. And, you know, she gives into the kiss. You know, I feel like there had to be something like that that just never made it to the screen. But it makes no sense. I thought it could have been something about energy transfer, you know, like because he's more powerful and he can save her if she was injured or something. I thought that could have been an angle. If they were going to kiss, then it could have been some sort of energy transfer sort of thing because he's a user and has more powers than she does. But they didn't go there either. They just I don't understand why they kissed. I don't either. And they had these existential conversations like she's like, well, in the world of the user, you always have a purpose. And he's like, no, we're just kind of walking around doing what everybody does. And uh, Tron's weirded out by the thought that the users don't have a plan and a purpose. And, you know, I feel like there needed to be something more because Flynn is the Jesus of the electronic world, but they don't work it quite right there's only a couple conversations about it and then this kiss at the end i don't get it i just don't get why anybody's acting the way they are also these two programs are very accepting of when he says i'm a user they're like oh okay sure i'll go with that they don't even question it they don't even doubt it they just he says i'm a user and they believe it completely and they don't even question wait a minute are the users up there but you're down here they don't do any of that yeah, this is the most muddled messiah complex movie I- I've seen. It's about a Jesus that doesn't do a whole lot except make a giant killer robot, which is kind of neat. But <laughs> there's so much potential here, the, the, with, especially with the, this emerging technology, the computers, you know, even before, you know, people were jacked into the Internet. What's reality? You know, people consider all 5000 of those people that they friended on Facebook. They consider them their friends like. We would consider someone that we grew up with in elementary school, our friend, you know, 20 years ago. But it just it doesn't run with anything. It it, it seems to want to just settle down and doing the bare minimum for, I guess, an action movie and give us some neat visuals. And that, that's what I found so frustrating. I wanted it to keep it, you know, just dive deeper and, and tell me something, get to some point. But it never goes there. Yeah. By this point, I was off the bandwagon. I was so excited and so loving this movie up to the light cycle scene. I was confused for the second half hour. I was wanting it to be over for this last half hour. I was just Mm. like, I I give up. They're not going to give it to me. They're not going to give me any reason to care about who these people are and why they're doing what they're doing. They're just going through the motions and it's not even exciting motions. And for the last half hour, when everything should be building to its most exciting peak, they're on a sailboat. And then you get to the final confrontation, eventually, finally, next year. (laughs) And Uh, Flynn has to sacrifice himself to save the others. So they could throw a frisbee into the bad guy's head. Twice. Why did they kill him twice that way? I do like that they scalped Sark. Again, I said there were two things in this movie I thought were intense for Disney. The scalping was the second one. And I love how, like, the bits fall out of his head. Me too. (laughs) I love the whole time when they're walking, it's old-fashioned video game noises. I love those kind of touches in this movie. I love it. And then when the bits fall out, too, it's like, yes, it's perfect. I don't like when Sark becomes giant. I've never liked that, the three times I've watched the movie. When he started to transform, I was so into it because I'm like, finally, we're going to see a human versus a computer-generated image. And I thought he was going to morph into, like, Donkey Kong or something. Not, like, actually (laughs) Donkey Kong, but some giant 
fake video game creature from Space Paranoids. Instead, it's just bigger Sark. Again, yes. the, the whole Sark thing never worked for me, and making him bigger, well, now he just doesn't work for me in a larger way. And then you get the confrontation with Master C, where he has a wall floating around him with one little opening. What's the point of that opening? It's so hard in the video game to throw the Frisbee in that opening because it keeps rotating. You know, it's like the Death Star with a vent <laughs> that could blow the whole thing up. Why do you build that into yourself? Master Computer's like, I'm smarter than anyone in the world. I can make the world 1,300 times more efficient. Why do you have a hole that's going to let yourself be killed? I think because they, that's where the data would come in. Honestly, that's what I took it to be. And but so he's he, got a big stream of data going down into his head from above. Alright, you, you win. You're right. I Why don't know. Why do and just stand above him and throw the Frisbee down? Into the- <laughs> uh, there you go. I was so screwed up. Thank you, South Park. I see the MC <laughs> CP's face at the end. And yeah, I'm like, wasn't he in the Justice League? And I'm like Googling, wondering if like the Legion of Doom had a red faced computer. And then I realized it's the super best friends. And this is Moses. See, I always thought South Park, they, they used like a spinning dreidel for Moses. I'm like, no, they're using Master Computer as Moses for some reason. <laughs> so Flynn jumps into the Master Computer and it turns blue and spins really fast. Tron gets his disc in and Sark derezzes. And then all the darkness is alleviated and all the light comes back. All the streams of data start flowing again and... Master Control Program is defeated and the computer can run again. And basically the movie stops. It just stops. <laughs> it just literally just stops. I mean, we get a quick shot of Flynn re-rezzing. Why? Master Computer's not around, so who's re-rezzing him? I guess because he's Jesus and it's just fate or God or something. It's because and, the movie's over. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> and then what exactly information he wants exactly prints out right there. But it could have been typed his own typewriter at home. Yeah, what evidence is that? It's a printout on a dot matrix. It's evidence for a 1982 movie going audience. <laughs> I mean, yes, admittedly, if you had the source code, that would be better. But I don't think that the source code is going to be intelligible. People are going to be like, what does that mean? Again, it's Sesame Street computers. Go with it. It's proof. <laughs> Yes, I'm just having fun pointing it out. But yes, I completely understand what's going on. And David Warner gets the exact same information on a data screen at the exact same time and immediately knows he's out of a job. And because that's how the world works, they don't just quietly pay Flynn off. No, now he's CEO. Yeah, I I, I just want to know in what world did like the guy who created Pac-Man or Super Mario Brothers now runs a huge, you know, military defense computer operating company? Not in the 80s, because let me tell you something. I know Atari 2600 developers. I have talked to them. They all got screwed. They got nothing. You built a game, you toiled for hours, and you got paid a salary and not a dime of royalties. That's what the company was for. At one point, the head of Atari referred to their game programmers as glorified towel makers. What does that mean? It means they had the same amount of skill as the people in China who make your towels. No, that is not what happened in the 80s. It's barely what happens now. Every so often you get a John Romero who breaks the mold, but... I just don't get, you know, you get this scene where Flynn gets out of the senior executive vice president helicopter and meets up with Alan and Laura. You know, there's some one-liner thrown out, and that's... That's it. Like, no acknowledgement that he just spent, you know, 90 minutes in a computer. No, it's just, it's the happy ending. It's like you said, the movie's over. Let's give him the happy ending. He's now really rich, too. (laughs) Because that's what happened to Jesus after he died for our sins, is he went to heaven and became CEO. God Incorporated. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> no, I, that said, I, I do like the final scene where it's just kind of the nightscape of the city and everything's in real fast motion to kind of, you know, replicate a circuit board. I like that symmetry. Yes. It's I, I don't know how obvious it was to the yeah. audiences back then, but I thought it was kind of neat. Oh, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. And it's back to the stuff I liked in the first half hour. When this movie was oscillating between the real world and the computer world, I liked it. And when it just got trapped and bogged down in that computer world, I would have had as much fun reading code. Let me ask you before we go into uh, recommendations. Did you guys like the music in this? Oh, it was moogtastic. You know, it also reminded me at times of Star Trek, the motion picture in some ways, especially when we're going through the screensavers and it's going. It worked for the movie. It was certainly digital enough and it it felt very 80s computery. It worked for me as much as the rest of this movie in a nostalgic way. I I thought it was appropriate for the movie. I, I got a little tired of it, you know, after a while, but. I thought it worked for, you know, the computer stuff worked. They did go into a little bit more of an orchestral thing later in the movie, which I thought was odd, but I kind of welcomed it at that point because I was getting a little tired of the old-fashioned computer music. But, you know, I, I like that it was in there because of when the movie was made and what else I was watching. So I guess I'm agreeing with you with the retro thing, uh, but I got a little tired of it as it went on. So that's why I'm asking. I got tired of this whole movie as it went on, <laughs> so I couldn't put my finger on the music as one of the many things that I wished was over. I'm just going to say, if you're a fan of, fan of the Moog, which is, is a, it's one of the first synthesizers, really. I mean, I, I'm actually a geek enough to have watched documentaries on it. And Disney actually uses it to uh, for their electrical light parader. They used to. I don't know if they have that at their parks anymore, where they use this computer synthesized sound for all the classic Disney themes. But it, it was weird when I was listening to some of this music. It took me right back to the video game. I'm like, this needs a little bit more of a bit crusher sound to it to have that video game sound. But it was weird that that's what it took me back to was playing, you know, popping my quarters in and starting up those games. So, Jacob, Arnie, do you recommend Tron? Jacob. I can't recommend Tron. I, I could see there's definitely an audience for it. I can understand why it's a cult classic. You know, if you're into computer programming or, or just, you know, that whole kind of scene, I could see why you'd be into this movie. But from a storytelling perspective, which is important to me if I'm going to spend, you know, an hour plus with a film. It's just not there. The themes there, it starts touching on some interesting themes. It never delves into them enough for me. It doesn't develop the characters enough. It doesn't develop the world. It develops the look of the world enough, but it doesn't develop the physics and and what's going on. I wanted more, you you know, go see The Matrix instead. You don't have to see the sequels, but see the first one. I, I think it does Tron a lot better than Tron does. I do not recommend this film. Arnie. I also can't recommend this film. I went into this film very excited. I really thought that the sequel coming up looks phenomenal, and I had great memories of this film. Admittedly, those memories are nearing 30 years old now, but I had great memories. And I went in, and the first half an hour was just this nostalgic romp, and I was having so much fun. But then when it has to become a movie, it just becomes this computer world. It did too good of a computer impersonation. Because it was cold and soulless, and I was just sitting there, and it became about as much fun as watching somebody else play a video game, (laughs) where the video game is of a slow-moving sailboat. 
it's, it's not even like watching someone play a video game. It's like watching the demo on the startup <laughs> screen. Yes. <laughs> so, no, I can't recommend it. I really wanted to. And I hope that this doesn't portend bad things for the sequel, which has the writer director of Tron is back as a writer producer of the sequel. And so many things about the sequel are a direct sequel to this. But. I'm hoping that they've looked and back and seen what they did wrong here. And it truly, the next movie is Tron 2.0, where they upgrade the story and the emotion and the characterizations. I can see why people would like it a lot for nostalgia factor. But if you want a Tron 1 experience before Tron 2, find yourself the Tron arcade game and play it. It's a lot better than the movie. It's a weak recommend, I guess. I like more about this movie than I dislike. I guess I'm going to recommend it, but it's a very, very weak recommend. I think it's kind of fun in a retro kind of way. I, I think the problems we're talking about, about the story and, and, and the pacing and all that kind of stuff, is definitely here. What's fun about watching the movie is the retro stuff and how much those graphics and those visuals for me uh, do hold up. But on repeat viewings for me, it's not holding up as well as I would have thought it would. I have to agree. There are some great things here. There are some great concepts here. I stand by saying this movie was ahead of its time and that I can hold it up to today's technology almost 30 years later and it stands. Its look stands for what it is. You don't look at it the way you look at things that try to look real and go, oh, that looks fake. Sure, some of the compositing, the people look weird and kind of flashy and grainy, but the look holds up, the idea holds up, the concept holds up, but it does not form a cohesive or entertaining 90-minute experience. It wears thin when it tries to tell you a story and tries to give you action and just can't do it. And I would like watching a clip show of this movie, but the entire 90-minute viewing experience was too much time to give it. Arnie, yeah. you just put this in the same category as I Know Who Killed Me, because we both agreed we'd really like a clip show version of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I know who killed me had more laughs, but didn't look as good. And I don't think it had Tron the blue had and red, to, though. It did have the blue and red. Maybe there's a link there we're missing. Maybe Tron just got out of rehab. And so we get the sequel. Where is my I know who killed me video game? It's in rehab. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a listen to our other podcasts in our archive section. You can find those at nowplayingpodcast.com, where also you will find a link to our forums where you can discuss this review and other reviews we've done with listeners like yourself. And you guys can tell us what you think. You can also tell us what you think about movies that we review on the show or movies we review on the fly on our Facebook page. All of now playing hosts when they see things on their leisure time. We do post a few comments on Facebook and sometimes some great lively conversations have with our listeners. So please join the fun there. You can like us on Facebook. On Facebook, we're now playing podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, now playing pod. And if you are on our homepage, don't forget in the bottom right-hand corner, there is a donate button where you can, if you like the show and you want to give us a few dollars so we can continue giving you Now Playing, we would greatly appreciate it. We don't require it, but it, please consider yourself thanked in advance if you do so. And thanks to all of the listeners' hard work, we have been nominated for the second year in a row for a podcast award. Woohoo! We thank you so much for nominating us that we're going to ask you to go back to their site and vote for us now. <laughs> Because we never ask you guys to do anything for us. <laughs> and let's be real. It's not an honor to be just nominated. It's an honor to win this freaking thing. For me, the nomination itself is an honor out of the thousands and thousands of podcasts. It's so great to know our listeners 
care enough to nominate us. And the fact is their number of votes only were 40% of the nomination. The other 60% were the judges' critical evaluation of our show, and they felt we were worthy. That means a lot. But come on, we this is our second time nominated. I don't want to be the Susan Lucci of podcasts here, folks. Please go and vote. All of the details are on our forums, on our Facebook, on our Twitter. It's only open for a couple of weeks here. Please, please, please go vote. And thank you so much for all your support of Now Playing. And we got Stuart on the hook. We will do an extra podcast series for free if we win this. Something he really doesn't want to do. (laughs) (laughs) So we will reconvene in two weeks to talk about Tron Legacy on our next podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Tron Retrospective Series. We made it this far. You can find the other episodes of the Tron Retrospective Series at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archive section, as well as our review of other classic movie series, including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. Finish the game! If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a positive review for us on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where we post new episodes and the Now Playing hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing presents the Tron Retrospective Series podcasts are edited by Jay and Arnie. You'll regret this. The Tron films are the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now playing is copyright and trademark Venganza Media Incorporated 2010, all rights reserved. So basically it's the plot to Grandma's Boy at this point. (laughs) Yes, I think we're all thinking that right now. It's really kind of funny. Um, I always think of Jeff Bridges kind of looking this way. And lately, and lately he looks so so much older, of course. But whenever I think Jeff Bridges in my head, I think this and Starman and that kind of era. I always think of him taking a, a dump in Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and that's Jeff Daniels. I get those two oh, confused right. a lot. <laughs> Never mind. Of I course, did that on purpose uh, for the blooper reel. Yes, yes, of course you did. We don't ever see Adam and Laura again. Alan. We, we don't see, We don't see Adam and Laura again. Alan. Alan. <laughs> <laughs> we don't see Alan and Lori again. Laura. Sorry. Alan. <laughs> Laura. <laughs> we don't see Adam. And, <laughs> shit. <laughs>